I'm delighted now to welcome Charlie Clements. He's a public health physician and human rights activist. Welcome to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. Thanks, Mary Charlotte. It's nice to be with you. Great to have you. Now, there seems to be a shift going on in public health thinking. I've observed this over the past several years, and it reflects itself in the way people talk about diet and all kinds of things. It used to be that fat was supposed to be really bad for you. Now it's sugar, refined sugar, that's the bad guy. What has changed? Well, there has been a, a 30 to 40 year campaign focus on, on lipids and fats in the American diet as the greatest threat to our health. But around 2009, the American uh, Cardiology Association released a study suggesting that obesity, uh, heart disease and diabetes was really a, a significant threat to Americans' health and that the greatest single contributing factor to obesity in, in, in America was the excess calories, the sugar that we get in, in soda drinks. Um, Americans consume about 30 and a half gallons of sweetened drinks a year, and we know the pathophysiology of that causes the things I mentioned a minute ago, diabetes, uh, heart disease, and, and of course obesity and all the complications that come with that. 30 gallons a year. We, we drink 30 and a half gallons. We're only exceeded by Mexico, which drinks 31 gallons per capita a year, but Americans are second in the world in consumption of sugary soda drinks. And so what about other kinds of sugars? I mean, Lord knows we eat a lot of cookies and cakes and jelly beans and things like that. Well, they, they certainly are a culprit as well. You know, some researchers about two to three years ago were going through some archives at Harvard University from some of the, the leading researchers that created the dietary guidelines that came out of the National Institutes of Health uh, in the 1950s. And they actually discovered evidence that the food industry had bought them off and, and convinced them that it was more important to focus on lipids than to focus on carbohydrates. And they intentionally shifted uh, their dietary guidelines to focus on lipids and, uh, and fats. So we, we do have a significant problem in this country with carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, as a factor in obesity and uh, leading to, to poor diet. Now, hang on a second. You said it was more important to focus on lipids than on carbohydrates? Right. So what does that mean in like regular people's terms? Like the old guidelines said you shouldn't eat too much butter and steak and that kind of thing? Right, right. The focus for a long time was on heart disease caused by uh, lipids, by the buildup uh, inside our arteries. And they have since discovered that carbohydrates play a very important role in that as well. And that focusing on lipids alone is not enough to prevent heart disease. Uh, and that we need to actually uh, pay a lot of attention to, to carbohydrate intake. Now, when you say carbohydrates, are you talking about all the carbohydrates like bread and things like that, or or the pure refined sugar, or, or what are you talking about? Well, all of them play a factor, but the pure refined sugar is the largest single contributing factor. Those are what we call empty calories. They don't come with any other food benefits to your body except for the sugars and very quickly processed in a way that's harmful to the body. So those are the single largest threat probably to our, to our health. We know that sugar is associated with diabetes. Does it cause diabetes? Does it hasten the onset of diabetes if you already have a proclivity toward that? How does that work? 
Oh, without a doubt. We we know from studying the diets of various peoples. For instance, there's a group of indigenous people in Mexico, the, the Tumahara, and they actually lived in a very mountainous area and in the 1970s and 80s began to relocate down to cities in Mexico, and they began to eat complex carbohydrates, including a lot of sugars. And diabetes was practically unknown in the Tumahara before that time, and by the 1990s, uh, they had as much diabetes as Mexicans, and uh, it's a leading cause of ill health in Mexico. If you can tell us in layman terms, what is the mechanism by which sugar consumption leads to diabetes? Well, the, the sugar is refined very quickly into glycogen, which is, is stored in our cells. The excess sugar seems to cause our own body to stop producing as much insulin. And then those very high sugar levels in our cells lead to fatty deposits. And through that mechanism, then we develop a resistance eventually to the insulin and uh, develop diabetes. Let's talk for a moment about the relationship between sugar and fat. Does sugar cause your body to create fat, or do you have to actually eat fat in order for your body to gain fat? No, it causes your body to actually create fat and stores it as well. So you could be on a practically non-fatty diet uh, that is in, in terms of very little meat, very little eggs, very little cholesterol, and you can still become obese from the sugar that's converted from, for instance, from carbohydrates are from us uh, soda drinks. What other diseases result from overconsumption of sugar? Well, certainly uh, it's a contributing factor to heart disease. Obesity is probably the largest single problem because it causes so many other issues. And so people that are obese uh, have a lot more pressure on their lower back, for instance. They have a lot more pressure on their hips, on their knees. Diabetes itself leads to amputations. There were 73 thousand amputations of lower limbs last year in the United States caused by diabetes. And that's because it causes what's called small vessel disease. That is the, the very small vessels in our extremities, in our feet, for instance, are compromised by diabetes, lead to poor circulation. And then a small injury like a blister that gets infected can lead to gangrene. So there are many, many complications of diabetes that are ominous. It eventually leads to blindness uh, in many people. It's a, a terrible disease in the way it slowly takes people down. There's been a huge increase in obesity even since I was a kid, and I wonder what are the contributing factors. I ask partly because as a child, I ate massive amounts of chocolate and cookies and candy and soda, and as an adult, I just basically let those things go pretty easily that didn't seem to be any negative effects, except maybe cavity, you know, tooth cavities when I was a kid. But, I, you know, I'm a pretty normal weight. What makes me different from the next person? Well, I think that you left a lot of those behind. Uh, a lot of people don't. If you were to go to the grocery store and look at how many foods have added corn syrup, for instance, a kind of a generic sweetener the food industry uses, it's ubiquitous. It's in many, many foods, and it causes us to to have kind of a of an addiction to to sugar and to carbohydrates. So, uh, you know, you were able to leave those behind, but other people don't, and they continue a lot of those a lot of those eating patterns throughout their adult life. There are some populations we know that are also more susceptible to diabetes. Certainly, among those are Native Americans. But if you just look at the statistics amongst Hispanic populations in the United States, amongst African American populations in the United States, and Caucasians. 
there's about a 70% greater chance of getting diabetes if you're Hispanic or if you're black. And we think that's largely related to, to diet, not related to genetics. And those populations drink more sodas, eat more candy and, and sugar and, you know, what you call empty calories? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's also a matter of uh, economics. Those foods are cheaper than, than more wholesome foods. We certainly know from lots of studies that there are far less grocery stores in urban neighborhoods that may be economically disadvantaged, so they have less access to healthy foods. And then there is the issue of, of cultural habits as well that are very hard to break. And part of this, of course, has to do with not only whether there are food deserts in those neighborhoods and cultural habits, but also, as you say, the economics, the cheap subsidized food. I mean, the reason it's so cheap is because of taxpayer subsidies, is it not? Well, it certainly uh, contributes to the production of uh, certain foods. We we subsidize huge overproduction of corn, for instance, although we don't uh, use that much of it ourselves. So there are certainly agricultural subsidies that contribute to this. Now, speaking of corn, I mean, most of the corn grown isn't corn on the cob that we're eating. It's other products like high fructose corn syrup. Is there a difference between the effect of high fructose corn syrup and, say, cane sugar in sweetened products in terms of their health effects? Probably not directly. Cane sugar as, a, as the place where sugar comes from when it enters soda is an empty calorie and causes problems in, in that regard, just the way high fructose corn syrup is added to many foods. Uh, but they probably have similar effects on the body. Let's talk for a moment more about empty calories. When you have refined sugar, when you have high fructose corn syrup or cane sugar, whatever, and you ingest a significant amount of it at one time, how does the body react differently than if you had ingested that perhaps over a longer period and in the context of, for example, eating a bowl of fruit over the course of the afternoon? Well, you know, the, the high fructose corn syrup and the, the sugar and soda drinks is metabolized very, very quickly. And that's not the case with fruit and more complex carbohydrates that are in some other foods. So, you know, we digest them without any other benefits to the body. They're digested much quickly than, than other sugars. Um, and they're converted to glycogen, which is stored and then turned into fat much quicker. So it's kind of a recipe for poor health. There are other problems with sugar besides the ones you've mentioned. I mean, you've mentioned diabetes and its many complications. You've mentioned heart disease. But then there's also what you might call behavioral stuff, like having a sugar high and then a crash that affect, well, school children or adults' ability to work and to focus. What does that look like from your perspective as a public health doctor? You know, we know a lot less about hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia than we do some of these other conditions because some people say that these are subjective, but we can certainly see, you know, school teachers will tell you in the behavior of children that the consumption of a lot of sugar in a hurry will cause hyperactivity. And certainly people that suffer from hypoglycemia will tell you that it creates problems for them in terms of emotions, uh, in terms of behavior, and in terms of being able to kind of think clearly. So we know that these are problems that are caused and, and probably know a little bit less about those kinds of things because they're a little bit harder to study 
scientifically than uh, pathophysiology of, of diabetes or heart disease. Now, cigarette smoking is dangerous. Everybody knows this. And there's a calculation that each cigarette that a person smokes, if they're a regular smoker, takes something like nine minutes off their life. Is there a calculation of this kind for refined sugar? You know, I haven't seen that kind of calculation, but I think that we're actually getting closer to being, being able to make some predictions like that. For instance, Mexico as a nation passed a tax on sugary drinks a while back, and they've been monitoring very closely what happens to behavior, how many people drink less of those drinks, how much less diabetes there is, how much less heart disease they can predict. They're expecting to save some small billions in their healthcare costs based on reduced consumption. So I think that I've never seen any figure about, you know, what what does a, a can of soda do to you? But I think that uh, we certainly have seen some marked declines in consumption of sugary drinks. And when we monitor the concomitant decrease in uh, diabetes and heart disease, we'll be able to make some estimates, perhaps. When did Mexico make this change? They imposed a tax on refined sugar beverages. How long ago was that? Are we actually seeing the results of that yet? They're beginning to see the results of that now. They passed it in 2014. It was enormously controversial. They initially saw a 12% decline in consumption of sugary drinks, followed by another 6%. So overall, they've seen about an 18% drop in consumption of, of sugary drinks. And they're beginning to actually see some, uh, some measurable differences in health outcomes already. And what are those differences? Well, they're predicting how much less obesity there's going to be. We certainly see that there are people who, who lose weight uh, because they're not drinking as many sugary drinks, and they're beginning to see a diminution in the amount of diabetes as well. Just in a two, three-year period. Their institutes of public health are already making some pretty significant projections based on what they've seen uh, in these first three years. And so that not only is good for public health, but it actually saves the country a lot, as you said, what is it, billions of dollars? They're looking at small billions and decreased health care costs over the life of those individuals that otherwise would have had some of those cardiovascular problems or effects of diabetes or hip replacements or knee replacements because of obesity, et cetera. What are people drinking instead? Well, you know, I haven't seen any studies from Mexico, but we have some very detailed studies of Berkeley, California, which passed a soda tax as well. And what happened in Berkeley was the American Public Health Association saw this bill being debated for about eight months. And so they did some very detailed surveys of people's consumption of, of drinks. What kind of drinks do you drink every day and how many of them? The soda tax passed in Berkeley. And then they did a study nine months to a year later asking many of those same people and, and other people now what they consumed in drinks. And they found that there was a, a significant decrease in sugary drinks that were taxed. And people in Berkeley and the poorest neighborhoods switched to bottled water, switched to juices, and switched to milk products, which weren't taxed. And so we know that the tax caused a subset of the population to switch to healthier drinks. I wonder what the economics are of that for families. In other words, if you start drinking water instead of drinking sodas, let's say, are you saving your family money? I mean, bottled water isn't necessarily cheap. It's not necessarily a good thing either. 
You're absolutely right. I don't think we know yet what the economics of that are at the family level, but I suspect that if you begin drinking bottled water, that you might also drink some out of the tap as well. But I don't think we can answer that question yet, because as you say, bottled water might cost a buck, although I've seen it you know, as, as low as 39 cents for an eight-ounce bottle in some uh, convenience store. So uh, it may be marginally cheaper, but I don't think we can answer that question yet. And I mean, either way, you're causing plastic bottle waste, which is its whole own program that we will probably address another time. No, I think it's, it's an interesting question you ask because there has been this shift in American attitudes toward water that comes out of the tap as if it's unhealthy for the most part, and this massive shift to bottled water when, in fact, our water out of the tap is amongst the healthiest in the world. Now, we know the whole history of big tobacco which fought against the idea that cigarettes caused cancer. And this was a long, long PR battle that the cigarette companies lost, but only after a very long period and a lot of cancer, a lot of death. Is there something analogous going on now in the food and beverage industries that are selling refined sugar products? Well, they say that really... The food industry would suggest to us that obesity is a more complex issue than just eating soda drinks, and uh, it's caused by people not exercising, by people making poor choices at the food store, and they're saying, why are we singling out uh, soda drinks as a culprit here when it's a multifactorial issue? A lot of it coming down to personal behavior, they're saying that's where the onus lies is on individuals, not on what's sold in stores. And there is, I mean, up to a point, there's some logic in that. Ultimately, the choice does rest in the decisions that individuals make. Well, we know that uh, with the tobacco industry, when we stop them from targeting teenagers with, with advertisements, that the rate of new smokers declined significantly over time. We also know that when uh, President Obama imposed an additional tax on packages of cigarettes, that we know that teenage smoking declined about 20%. So the food industry spends 3 to $4 billion advertising soft drinks, and many of those advertisements are aimed at the teenage audience. So, you know, they're specifically targeting this audience, and then they're saying, well, yeah, but there's a lot more going on than, than just drinking sugary drinks, and yet that is a big market for them as well. One of the trends that I've noticed in recent years is a real standing up against fat shaming. I mean, people who are fat, people who are obese are the targets of so much vitriol, hatred, criticism, and they're really taking a stand and saying, you know, my weight is none of your business. How do you see that as a public health doctor? Well, I think that in many ways what they're saying is that this is a personal issue and the government has no business being involved in this. But we know that ultimately a lot of the costs of obesity are borne by the taxpayer, by the public, by public health measures. I mentioned uh, in 2009 the figure was $147 billion a year spent treating obesity. Now it's up to about $190 billion a year. So I think it is an issue that uh, involves all of us. And if we can find ways to diminish the amount of obesity in the United States without making people feel guilty, without browbeating them, without embarrassing them, I think we're doing a good thing. Yeah, I don't think that people who are standing up against fat shaming are standing up against the government telling them what to do, but rather the kind of culture in this country of cruelty, essentially. 
I think that people who are overweight suffer in many, many ways that those of us who are not overweight don't understand. One, in choice of clothes, inability to use equipment that other people use, ability to fit into an airplane seat comfortably. I was on the plane recently with someone who couldn't use that little table you rest your computer on on an aircraft because it uh, was interfered with by her body, so she couldn't use her laptop during the trip. So I think there are many ways that our society is perhaps biased against people that are overweight, and uh, we're not even aware of all of those things, but the people who experience them are. If somebody has been, let's say, I mean, somebody's a middle-aged adult, they have been heavy or obese all their lives, they want to change, they've tried every diet in the world, it hasn't worked, what are their choices? What can they do? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the diet industry is certainly a, a big one in the United States. And, and I think that we have discovered that amongst the things that do work are what's called portion control. But when you have a lot of fat cells, when you're overweight, I think that you are less easily satisfied. You reach a point of satiety of thinking, oh, I've had enough to eat later than most people. And so I think it takes enormous effort to successfully lose weight. I think that the statistics are, are that people who go on diets, 95% of them, 90 to 95% of them regain that weight because they really don't make permanent changes in their habits so much as go on a diet, which is a temporary thing. So I think the most important thing is to really begin to understand what foods are unhealthy for you and, and to change your habits. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do. One of the things that I've read about is the fact that we are so drawn to sweet foods. I mean, virtually all children love jelly beans and love sodas and love cakes and so on. And I'm a particular fan of root beer myself and things like that. But in nature, in the nature in which we evolved as homo sapiens, as mammals, there wasn't a whole lot of that available. And so being really drawn to sugar is hardwired in us but in a different context. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think there have been some, some recent studies that have shown that sugars activate the same part of the brain as, for instance, as cocaine, so that there is an addictive quality to our cravings to want more and more sugar. And I think that they are just beginning to understand some of the psychological aspects of this, but I think there is an, an addictive nature to this that touches a part of our brain that is stimulated by drugs that are addictive. What do you think is a healthy way to live and eat without entirely giving up those delicious parts of our lives, like in my case, root beer and cake and things like that? Well, I think that, that we certainly know that there are some sugar substitutes now that don't give us those empty calories, but give us that sweet taste. I knew a woman once who grew up in Rome, Georgia, which I think is where the Coca-Cola brand began. And as a 30-year-old adult, she drank 20 to 30 Coca-Colas a day. Good heavens. And just couldn't get out of that habit. And I think part of that is this sweet addiction. So I think that certainly an important part of is not having to give up things entirely, but just having to go to portion control and drinking or eating much less of what you uh, did before. When people, for their own health reasons, get off of sugar and they start a new diet, and it's hard at first, how does the body adapt? I mean, does it get easier over time? 
you know, I think most of our food habits are just that, they're habits. And so I think that it takes a little time to make that switch. People who, you know, make drastic changes in their diet, I think, have the hardest time in the first six months. And then after six months, some of those things that they maybe didn't like as much at first begin to appear more attractive, especially when you're hungry, and that's what's available to you. So I think it's a matter of changing our habits to a great degree, and that takes a lot of time. Tell us more about the sugar industry, the food industry, and how we think about sugar and what kind of choices we make. Well, I think that any time the United States comes out with dietary guidelines, the food industry as a whole is very concerned. They're concerned about what consumptions will diminish and decrease their profits, how can they actually encourage the increase in certain products. And so both the dairy industry the meat industry, the food industry, which produces the, a lot of sugars and additives and refined foods, are all involved every time the U.S. comes out with new dietary guidelines. In the, uh, the 1950s, the National Institutes of Health were coming out with some of the first really scientific guidelines we had used in this country as we understood more about the chemistry of foods and the pathophysiology of diseases. And at that time, Evidence now indicates that some of the leading nutrition experts, a couple of them located at Harvard University, were actually on the payroll in a way that uh, that was not known to the public of the food industry and that they actually steered our guidelines away from carbohydrates, which they were beginning to focus on, away from uh, sugars and pinpointed lipids and fats as the threats in the American diet that we needed to pay a lot of attention to. And it actually appears that that shift had a 30 to 40 year impact on American dietary guidelines and the way that we consume food and the things that we thought about and tried to avoid in diets. You know, if you look at the diets that were popular in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, often they were diets that focus almost obsessively on cholesterol, fat in the diet, lipids, and really said almost nothing about carbohydrates. And what is a healthy diet right now in current public health thinking? I mean, we know that too much refined sugar, whether it be in the form of sodas or other things, is not good for you. But what about fats? Are are hamburgers now okay? Well, it's, uh, you know, I think it comes back to all things in moderation. And we have discovered that eating lean hamburger is better than eating a hamburger that has a lot more fat in it. But if one does that in moderation, you're unlikely to develop a serious heart disease. I think it's a more nuanced approach now that we know that we can say that no more than, say, 5% of the sugars that we consume or carbohydrates that we consume come from empty calories like in soda drinks. We can say that we really need to eat non-processed foods, not cookies and potato chips and uh, foods of that nature. So I think we're moving toward less refined foods in our diet and more foods that are not so heavily processed as well, fruits and vegetables and even meats that are not heavily processed. Has the way that you eat been influenced by your work as a public health doctor? Without a doubt. I think that uh, both seeing the impact of the way people eat in patients when I was a family physician and seeing patients and seeing the long, slow and painful impact on families that diabetes has and heart disease, I think it's definitely impacted the way I I eat and maybe one of the reasons that I'm perhaps not overweight. 
these paradigm shifts in diet and attitudes toward food and even scientific understanding are often very slow processes that take 20 to 30 years. We now know that there was one individual in the Midwest who in the 1920s was largely responsible for creating the American attitude that we had to have eggs and bacon every day for breakfast. And prior to that time, that had not been the usual pattern. People might have eaten oatmeal or toast or fruits. But this one individual who really was a very good promoter convinced many people, and this was propagated through the media, that the proper way to start a day was to have eggs and bacon. And that has had a lasting impact. So these shifts take a long time to have an impact. Uh, and I think we're in the midst of one now in regard to sugars and carbohydrates. And it'll be a battle that's, that's fought over, I think, some decades. And that battle is being fought in many different ways. I mean, you mentioned the um, soda taxes that are happening in various places. There's public health education. There's consumer choice. I mean, what does that look like? Well, I think that all of those things are contributing factors, and uh, some of them that take place in what we call the marketplace are harder to affect except by taxes. For instance, you know, grocery stores are often paid to put food within the reach of children that's more attractive to them, and many times that food is not the, the healthiest for children. But we can't have much of an impact on those marketplace issues uh, so much as we can uh, issues that involve education that involve disincentives such as taxes, issues that really involve families beginning to understand how to eat healthier and, and, and choosing to do so. There has been a movement to get, for example, candy machines and soda machines out of the schools. How successful has that been? I think in the schools where that's been tried, uh, there is significant less consumption of sugary drinks and candy bars, and they've substituted healthier snacks in many of those places. So I think that that's been fairly successful, but I think it's been in a very limited uh, number of venues. Are there still vending machines available in, in many public schools? I don't think they're available as available in public schools as they were, but they're certainly very available near public schools. So on lunch breaks, kids can run out and still grab some of those less healthy things to eat. Charlie Clements is a public health physician and human rights activist. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mary Charlotte. Happy to be with you. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media and check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. And we are on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and on Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. I would like to thank Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more about them at SteadyNetworks.com. And I've been working with them for years, and they're great at what they do, and they're great public media supporters. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.